Welcome to episode 107 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Chris Knudsen, and I'm a practicing licensed professional engineer and certified program and project manager directing a major infrastructure construction program in the UK. But I'm also focused on inspiring civil engineers, and because of that, continue to share my thoughts through my writings and through this podcast with my co-host, Anthony Vizzano. We want to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. Both Anthony and I believe that to be successful as a civil engineering professional, you must constantly improve your soft, interpersonal, and management skills. And that's exactly what listening to this show will help you do. And in this episode, I'm talking with Chris Chi Lanwan, who is the head of design management at Mazdar City in the UAE. We have a great conversation around design management and sustainability and how to achieve innovation in development projects. I think you're really going to like this episode and what Chris shares with us. Here's a little more about Chris. He is currently leading the design management of Mazdar City, exploring and adopting holistic approaches to sustainable design. He has worked on a number of environmentally driven projects for Richard Rogers Partnership in London and for Roco Design Limited in Hong Kong. Later, he moved into building development working for Saru Real Estate in Abu Dhabi before finally joining Mazdar City in 2008. Chris graduated from the University of Bath in the United Kingdom, and he is a registered architect in both the UK and in Hong Kong. But before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it that way. So we're always happy when you support them and us in keeping this show free. And the sponsor is PPI. Listen up later on in this podcast where I'll be sharing info on where to find practical tips and time-tested resources for your civil engineering licensure exam, including an exclusive 20% discount available only to you. Don't miss it. Now, let's dive into episode 107 for a civil engineering conversation with Chris Chi Long Wong. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our civil engineering conversation. And today I have with me Chris. Uh, Chris, welcome to the uh, Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. It's great to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking a bit about sustainability, a bit about engineering and a bit about the uh, organization that, that you work with uh, at Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. I'd be curious just for our listeners um, to help them understand a little bit more about what it is or where it is that you actually work. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Mazdar City. Mazdar City, probably the best way to describe it is it's a project of a major development which kind of maps out Mazdar's road or roadmap to build a sustainable low carbon eco development. I think it's um, important to understand Mazda City in the context of Mazda, because Mazda itself is a company and we are a subsidiary of the McBadler Investment Company. Mazda itself comprises of a number of business units, and I'm just trying to put Mazda City in context of Mazda. And the two key business units are the clean energy unit and the sustainable real estate unit. Clean energy unit is where we have undertaken a large number of renewable energy projects, both uh, within the UAE and across the world. And its primary focus is to develop large-scale clean energy plants, be it wind or solar or any other number of varieties. Whereas on the sustainable real estate, we concentrate our effort developing sustainable buildings and communities and districts. And so Mazda City belongs to the 
sustainable real estate units being managed by us. What's interesting is that if you think about it and step back a little bit, you have the clean energy unit who are supplying clean energy and then sustainable real estate who are designing, building and managing a sustainable development. And in the sustainable development, we are dealing with the demand side of the energy equation. So one side is a supply and the other side is a demand. And this relationship appears across all the work that we do at Mazda. Yeah, that helps to put things in context. I appreciate that, especially with understanding how the sustainability piece plays into this. Mazdar City, if you, and for those that are listening, we'll have links to Mazdar's website so they can go and take a look at this. Is, uh, as best I can tell, really a mixed-use development. We talked a little bit about the sustainability piece and looking at the demand side. Beyond just the demand side, is there anything else that Mazdar, that uh, I guess is really looked at with regards to Mazdar City that makes it unique? compared to other mixed-use developments that perhaps are trying to market themselves as being sustainable? First of all, yes, you're right. We are a mixed-use development. And the idea is to have almost like a microcosm of uses, be it commercial or residential, community, retail, educational. All you expect the uses to make up the fabric of a city comes together at Mazda City. So it is a mixed-use development. On top of that, because we are part of, as I described earlier, the Mubadla Investment Company, it's the word investment. And investment sort of drives through everything that we do here. So not only we are building a community, but at the end of the day, we are also an investment vehicle. And this is where it becomes interesting, because the third overlay of this is that we are building a sustainable development. So you put up the three together. We're building a community. It's economically driven. And we are also a environmentally sustainable development. So in short, you're describing the well-known three pillars of sustainability. It's economic, social, and environmental pillars. And what makes Mazda City unique is that we are an eco-city concept as we have seen many other people have ideas of concepts for eco-development, but turned into reality. And this idea of turning a concept into reality with buildings around us, which is where I am sitting now and where we are talking now, is the specialness about it, what it means to develop an eco-concept into an eco-reality. Yeah, that is what makes it unique. I think the other thing, Chris, that makes it unique is, uh, Chris, you're sitting in Abu Dhabi, which uh, most people will, will understand is you know in the desert, you're not that far from the Uba Khalid or the uh, empty quarter, which makes me then think, you know, what might have been the rationale for building an eco city? So basically taking the concept and putting it into reality, but choosing a location that is extreme, not only from a temperature climatic perspective, but just extreme in, in uh, access and so on and so forth. What was the rationale behind doing that uh, as opposed to perhaps making that investment in a less climatically challenging location? The best way to answer that question is we need to understand that this project was initiated by the leadership of Abu Dhabi. And it was an initiative to explore ways uh, for the people of Abu Dhabi to live in a sustainable manner. It is true that we are working in a relatively harsh environment with 
high temperatures, high humidity, all that is true. So on the one hand, we have set ourselves quite a challenge of building in a quite a harsh environment. But on the other hand, if we are able to solve these issues for such an environment, then this learning will be very useful. And if anything, it will be easier to solve for other parts of the world. So we are going on this journey of developing a process. And we do hope that from this process, we can develop a potential green print, say. And this green print would also help other people to share knowledge with us so they can share knowledge with them so that people are pursuing like-minded goals can gain value from our experience. Yeah, that's a great way of, uh, I guess, you know, really laying that out. In fact, you're able to make it work in Abu Dhabi, which, as you mentioned, is a pretty harsh environment. Then, um, then presumably it would be simpler to be able to make it work in a less harsh environment uh, in the more northern climates, perhaps, or um, elsewhere. Was that... One of the goals, do you think, of the original decisions around putting Mazdar City there and, and starting that investment there, were there other goals that Mazdar City had or the concepts behind Mazdar City were trying to achieve? And if they were, what those were? At the beginning, at the birth of the project, there were a large number of goals set and um, they related to energy, they relate to water, they relate to waste, they relate to carbon. And they were targets that helped drive the decisions and drive the direction that we want to go in. And so these goals are not just about energy only, and they do encompass all that you would expect and understand a sustainable development would include. And these areas of studies, as we learn more and more, become sort of wider and wider and Sustainability is one of these subjects that is very much all inclusive of everything that happens to us. It's not about energy only. The lesson here is starting off with the initial concept, initial goals. We did not have at the time that much of an idea of where we would end up. Part of the reasons because we were setting ourselves up in to go in directions and to shoot for goals that no other people has really went after to such a level of details as we have. So this process of starting with these high-level goals to where we are today, which is very a set of, call it, boundary goals. And these boundary goals is that optimization of where we are today between the community, the economics, and the environmental factors. Again, I go back to this point. You start with a high-level vision. It gets everyone going on this train. It gets everyone motivated. And then you take these ideas, then you work through from a concept into the details and then eventually building it. As you go along this journey, there are many, many challenges. And these challenges, uh, some people perceive them as roadblocks and obstacles. And these are the same obstacles that everyone across the whole world faces when they want to build in a more eco manner. But these are challenges and at the same time I'll call it challenges learning points. For example, if you look at typical building regulations, building regulations are built from decades and decades of experience. So they're built from learning from the past. We are trying to figure out a way to move into the future. 
So what happens is the future does not necessarily match up with the past. And that impact and that line of where you adopt current policies and regulations and then trying to work with the various agencies to push those boundaries out so that we can uh, make advances in a more uh, sustainable manner is part of the practical reality that not only we face, but I'm sure that everyone else taking this route will also face. Chris, there's a number of things that you've wrapped into your statements there. I think they're are really unique and quite frankly, profound and useful for civil engineers that are listening to this, even if they are working on even on non-echo developments. The idea of, of having this very high level vision. And then as you kind of mentioned, you were really in the concept here was really kind of marching off into the unknown. So obviously having some really solid set goals were going to be difficult because nobody had ever done this before. There really was no way to, to be able to measure that. So I think the idea of having boundary goals or thresholds, if you were, were a good way of providing those handrails. For any civil engineers listening to this, a very useful way of approaching, let's say, unique or challenging projects or programs where you don't necessarily have all the answers at the outset. The other piece, Chris, I think was interesting, could probably be its own show in and of itself, is this tie that I just picked up. I kind of wrote my little note here is the tie between political and technical. So obviously, there were a number of technical challenges that had to be overcome and that probably are continuously having to be overcome. Um, at Mazdar City. But then, as you mentioned, with regards to building codes and regulatory guidance, there's a political element to this as well. I mean, there's always a technical piece tied up in those codes, but there's also this political or legislative component that, that plays in there as well. I'd be curious to pull that string a little bit further to get a better understanding is understandings and the knowledge around echo development has progressed for you there at Mazdar City. How much of the challenge that you face on a daily basis is technical versus, let's say, regulatory or code related in just say maybe a given week or maybe the issues that you've got on your plate right now? Are they mostly technical or do you have some of these political challenges that are in there amongst the issues you're dealing with? I'm going to take this opportunity to take you maybe on a second and third tier attitudes because um, you touched on a very, very interesting point. This whole idea of working with a regulatory framework, which of course is not unique to us. Everyone works in a regulatory framework. And then we have the technical aspect of eco-design. The reality is that they're not separate things and they cannot be separate things. Once you have a design, they encompass both ideas on this the same drawing, so to speak. And many places, including the Abu Dhabi, have made great advances in looking at the regulations to see how they can be improved to promote sustainable design. That is happening and that is ongoing. The challenge with that, though, is that there's a tendency for people to pick up those changes as adding additional costs to your projects. If, for example, I increase the U-value of a window to so that it can... Um, make the envelope more energy efficient. Of course, one obvious outcome of that is that I need to spend more money to pay for a more expensive glass. Now, when you look at the other side of the balance, you have someone saying that if I need to pay more money for my envelope, then uh, I'm going to have a problem with my economic plan. My return on investment will be decreased. And this is, uh, I haven't even began talking about any side impact on the social or community aspect of this. What do you do? And out from this is the classic question that comes up, which is, what is the premium you need to pay 
for sustainable design? How much more money do I spend in order that I can make my buildings more energy efficient, more water efficient, improve air quality, promote a healthy lifestyle, etc.? That question comes up again and again. The reality that we have found is that once you start talking about premium for sustainability, then you enter the realm of pure research pilot type projects, meaning someone's going to say, we love the projects you're doing. We understand why you're doing them. We understand that they are good for the environment. But from an economic point of view, we cannot do it because we will not be able to compete in the general market for sellability or leasing, etc. And that is a challenge. So from that, we took that challenge on. And what we did in the process was, seems to me quite simple now, but at the time was a complete turnaround. And this was part of the evolution of the Mazda City project. We changed from asking what was the premium for sustainability into for a given cost model that works from an investment point of view, how green can your building be? Which is a very different kind of question. Yeah, well, it's a very simple way of turning that one around as well. So that's very elegant. It became for us a game changer because suddenly we went down the route of making buildings where the economic model and the return on investment has work, has to work. The question is then, the, the, the tier that lead comes from this, well, how do you do it? How do you do that? How do you build greener buildings and not impact the cost model? So how do you do that? And this is where I found very interesting for engineers, the architects, and all the specialist designers come together. And what we have been doing is that we've been spending a lot of time on this question. And where we are now today, and by no means we are at anywhere close to the end of our journey, you know, this is just a snapshot in time is the whole idea of collaborative design or integrated design or integrated design process. This whole arena of understanding how architects and engineers and engineers of different disciplines works together. And so we made a big effort when we work with architects and engineers, try to understand what is the most efficient way and most creative way to come to arrive at solutions that not only answer the cost questions, but also provide a much greener or deep green development. You're right. The original look at sustainability, especially if it gets in the regulatory framework, is an immediate a negative viewpoint of, okay, you know, I'm not driven to have to achieve these things, these requirements, these gates, if you will, on my project. And as you said, you flipped this around and said, okay, given whatever the cost model is that we have, how green can we make this? And I do also appreciate just from my own experiences um, the importance of this integrated design and collaborative concept and how important it is to be able to have architects and engineers working together to figure out how to solve the financial equation, but finding that, that key nexus between the, the finances and the engineering elements or aspects that one's trying to achieve. And in this particular case, being ECHO, it has, uh, it's just a, what a very unique way of approaching this, this uh, challenge. Some of the thoughts I had around this as we were preparing for the interview was, you know, asking around some unique techniques uh, that were used from an architectural standpoint or a civil engineer perspective to reduce, you know, some of the heat loading on structures. And I will ask that question for you here in just a moment. But I think this is probably one of the most unique ways that you've been able to solve this problem of sustainable, really, I'll just say it's sustainable construction, which is kind of shifting the paradigm thought process. 
and starting with here's what we've got economically, how green can we go? Getting to maybe shifting a little bit into a more technical perspective, I, I would be interested to know while you've been developing these unique processes for being able to achieve green designs and make them economically feasible, what kind of techniques, either from an architectural or architectural standpoint or a civil engineer perspective, have you been developing and utilizing to be able to, let's say, you know, reduce heat loading on structures or maybe increase the efficiency of the use of water or, or cooling? Any type of new initiatives that you've been able to achieve through the development there at Mazdar City? I'd love to um, share some thinking on this because I think it's um, a very important topic. It's an opportunity to kind of move beyond just saying, yes, we want to be green. How? And on this how part, I like to approach it in two, maybe three different ways. They are all relevant, but different. And at the same time, these different viewpoints need to come together. The first one is mindset. Mindset is a very important topic. It comes up up and up again. And we hear about people saying, oh, we don't have a green mindset and you never be able to move in the right direction. And we can build greener cities in the world. But if you leave the window open all day when the building's in condition and you have a problem, like that's at a very basic level. But when it comes to in the design arena, mindset comes up again. Probably the best way to explain it is this through what I call maybe a, a little story. So you stand in front of a built building and you talk to the designers and you ask the designers a question. And I use the word designers, so which is all encompassing. It includes architects and engineers and all the specialists that are involved to design and build a building. So use the word designers collectively. The question is, now that you've built the building, if you had to start all over again and you had exactly the same budget, would you be able to build a building that has the same use, provides the same floor area, but uses less energy? You'll find in most occasions, the answer is yes, we can because we could have done this or that or the other. Even if it's just a 1% saving compared to what's built out there. When you think about this question and you look at the buildings that's built around us and you just look and ask yourself the question, could someone have done this building that's a little bit more energy efficient for the same brief and the same cost parameters? I would say that in most occasions, the answer would be yes, we could have done something. Then the question following from this is, then why didn't you? The answer to that question is multiple, but it ranges from that wasn't the brief from the client or the building owner did not ask for it, or that was not the concept for this building. And this is where we go wrong very often. You see. Buildings have a brief for purpose. The owner or the person who commissioned the building probably have their own vision. And that vision is very important. And it takes the goal, it takes the goals or the mindset of the people working on that. It's very different to say, I want to build an iconic structure for the city and it symbolizes X, Y, and Z. But it's a brief. The building has a purpose, which is very different to a brief is, I have this brief, I need to house this many people or I need to accommodate this number of people in a fantastic environment, but it needs to be X percent energy efficient, at least minimum, which is a very different kind of brief. And therefore, very often, it starts with the owner who carries out the vision of asking the design team they put together 
what they want. We are quite open about, about this. And as our city, we are owner and owner representative. And we come forward and we talk to our architects and engineers and we say, we want a truly sustainable building. So that's very basic, but you'd be surprised how often that is not done. So that's step number one. Right? Everyone involved in the project, all the architects and engineers, including all stakeholders, including the person who commissioned the building, the owners, they have to all run in the same direction, the prerequisite. And this is hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It is hard. You just need one or two people who's not on board and the direction will go in a very different direction. And Chris, to that point, since mindset is so important on this, have you had success with the, I mean, obviously you've been successful so far on this, but what is the process that you use? This is a little bit of a sidebar conversation, but the, the process that you use to make sure that you can get everybody out of the right mindset and on board with it. Because you're right, if you've got one or two that are not willing to work, it's going to be very difficult to get there. This is interesting because having been involved now for multiple number of projects at Mazar City, there are projects where we have a very high percentage of like-minded people and we have projects with have a, let's say, a lower percentage. And the outcome you can see, you can almost correlate the outcome to the, you can kind of do a backward pass. So with this outcome, I'll guess that the number of people you had running in the same direction is X percent. It's funny. I mean, there is this correlation. It comes out, <laughs> whether you like it or not. We are fortunate because we are blessed with a very strong core team within Mazda and we make every effort to try to build the right team. Again, I'm saying it's not easy, but that's what we do. And we realize that the building the right team will get you 50% to the success of a sustainable project already, even before you start the project. So that's important. I agree with you. My experience is this has been the same. And that's not even on really on echo projects. It's been on normal projects and programs. It's so important to have a solid team with everyone, not that group think, because that, that's never useful, but generally everybody's sharing the same vision, the same mindset of where they want to go. So that's a very important point. You had mentioned that there was a perhaps even three elements here. So we got through number one. What's number two? Element number two is that, again, we're fortunate because we're owners' representatives. So we have some level of control about the process and especially the design process. And to that end, we have, we understand that the biggest design influence on a project happened in very, very early stages. I've been involved in projects in, in my previous life before I joined Mazda, where you get into thematic design and detailed design. And then someone comes along and say, okay, let's make this a green building. This, it's not too late, but you're going to pay for that. The decision to go where you want to go to has to be made even before you start the design. Having said that, these early stages, the pre-concept or feasibility or concept design and running up to schematic design, we deliberately front load our schedule. So schedules are schedules. They're always tight. Everyone works under time pressure. No schedule seems to be long enough. I and mean, we understand all that. But we're not asking for extra time. What we're doing is that um, we're taking time that you would put, let's say, into detailed um, construction documentation stages and technical drawing stages, taking it, shaving it from there and uploading it front into the concept and pre-concept period. Because we understand that invest that time in the concept, get it right, 
and that you set the path of the bullets in the, in the right direction. And we have found out that if you get your concept really, really right, you get that time back later on. It's always surprising me that the, the amount of time spent in schematic and detail design, fixing things that should have happened at one design stage earlier. You're experiencing the same, well, you would be probably saying, experiencing some of the same challenges that you get in, in non-eco projects you know, popping up and finding themselves in the, in the eco, just even more so amplified because of some of the specialty aspects and, and concepts that have got to be brought into it. And so that's a, you're absolutely right. It's the, uh, you know, putting that time and energy up front to make sure that there's a very well, well reasoned and well thought out plan. And I've often found, and I think you're kind of going on the same path here that you end up making it up later on, not only in a time savings perhaps, but certainly in a financial savings by not having to rework and uh, other challenges that come along. That's right. And so that leads to the third point. Once you created the right framework, then the third part kicks in, which is the integrated design process or the collaboration. This is a, a quite an interesting topic to me because most people or most designers, um, when you talk to them about integrated design, they will all openly say, we agree and we embrace it and we practice integrated design. The challenge is that we all work under real life day-to-day programs and time schedules that fights against you wanting to invest time to collaborate. Right? It's, as I say, Mazda City is about learning the, the day-to-day realities of getting this uh, mission built. What we found is we always bit the bullet and at every design stage, we just physically get everyone into the same room right? or all the st- stakeholders or the design stakeholders into the same room is the communication. Now, this communication and this ability to talk to each other, sometimes people tell me, well, we have collaborative tools, we have BIM, and we have softwares that can help us, we have clash detection and what is something. And all this software is relevant, is very important, but does not replace face-to-face communication. Because now go back to the sustainable design part and now go back to the innovation part or trying to push the boundary forward you're not going to push any boundary forward if everyone falls into the default mode of borrowing their architecture and then engineering the solutions that we're trying to put onto the table very often we end up finding in the gaps between the different disciplines what's the best way to explain that let's take curtain wall for example very often in the design of a curtain wall, who's talking to each other is the architect, the structural engineer, or civil engineer. Uh, sometimes you have a, if it's a sophisticated wall, it, it could be a facade engineer involved. And those people will collaborate and you come up with a solution. We try to go one step further. In that discussion, we understand that that facade has an impact on the mechanical engineer through the HVAC system. So we get him involved in the conversation. And then the electrical engineer who's in charge of the lighting, we get him involved because that facade and the ratio of window opening have a huge impact on how you light up the room. We sometimes even talk to the interior designer about understanding the relationship of a window to the depth of the room behind you. And out of all this, and there are more as well, I can go on. I mean, the material specialists and we're talking about 
recycled materials and embodied carbon materials. But if we just stick to those topics at the moment. These disciplines play off each other. It's not the mechanical engineer coming in with an envelope determined by somebody else and then him trying to, or her, trying to build a plant to fit. And in most cases, the person designing the facade probably have only a limited understanding of the impact he has on the air conditioning load. That's a, a conversation that probably does not happen enough. We are trying our best here to make that conversation happen because when that conversation happens, you will find efficiencies that you didn't realize could exist before. Or if you did realize they exist, you didn't make the time to find those efficiencies. These are great points. So we covered on mindset uh, framework and then this last one of collaboration. And of course, so important in the work that you're doing there in a, uh, with the sustainable development. But um, I can see where these are easily applicable for any of the deeper students or your listeners here of applying these in the projects that you may be working on, programs that you may be working in, the importance of having that set mindset, shared mindset, establishing a framework, and certainly in the uh, putting the time and energy into the concept of feasibility up front. And then this idea of collaboration, which is, I think, often overused in a lot of conversations. But Chris, you've done a great job of laying out what that really means in, in the uh, with the example of the curtain wall and the importance of having perhaps individuals that normally wouldn't be involved in that discussion involved because of the outcomes and perhaps the advancements that might come out of it. Those are all great frameworks. A couple more questions for you here, and it really kind of builds off and you've for listeners who have been listening to this entire episode are going to have already figured out what perhaps your job entails on a daily basis. But I would be interested, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what your role as the head of design management entails. I suspect it's a lot of what we've just been talking about, but perhaps there's some other aspects that we haven't touched on yet. My day job. <laughs> this is my background. I'm an architect by training and Halfway through my career, I went in the direction of what is known as design management. Now, design management, I understand in different organizations have slightly different meaning, but at Mazda is essentially the guardian of design. That's probably the most generic term I can put it. Now, as the guardian of the design of Mazda City, and I'm not talking about me as an individual, um, part of a larger team, we have uh, specific roles. It starts from working together at feasibility stage with a much wider team that involves development managers, um, delivery managers, facility management. Uh, there's this multidisciplinary team that exists in Mazda, and we're part of that to help generate feasibilities and cost models that I eventually go through a review and approval process for to finance a project in its very early stages. Then from that, we are involved with the whole process of building up the design team through writing request for proposals, the scoping documents, understanding schedules and having input on schedules, working with our internal planners and then working with a procurement team to for a tendering process to get the to build the right team of architects and engineers. Then we manage the design process through sharing with our designers the lessons learned of all the projects we've done up to date. And through those lessons learned, we are challenging designers to let's work together to try and get to the next step. We, through our experience, bring something to the table 
and we ask that the designers we work with also bring something to the table. And if everyone brings something to the table, then hopefully at the end of this, we come out with something even better. So design, design process, workshops, charrettes, design reviews, feedbacks, ensuring that designers deliver to Mazda in what we're set out to do in our original uh, brief for the project. Then when it comes to construction, different team inside Mazda takes over, but we remain engaged throughout the whole process and providing technical support. And then we come to a final handover. Again, we provide whatever technical support, working with facility managers who eventually take over and operate the building. So we're very fortunate being the design management team that we are involved in most parts of the life cycle of a building from inception and feasibility to handover and operation. Chris, I appreciate that. And it's, I think for individuals that are listening to the show here today, our listeners that are out there, if anybody was interested in learning a little bit more about what you do, is there a way that they might be able to get in touch with you? Is there something you might be able to recommend? I'm happy for anybody to get in touch with me. If anyone is interested to learn more about design management, because the thing is about design management, it is a relatively new field. And if you go out there and research books about design management, there's actually not that many. I mean, there's one or two good ones out there, but uh, there's not actually it's not many. And as a result, there is a lot of research going on now at master's and doctorate level about defining the role of, of design management. And it just happens that when you put design management and sustainability together, they tend to go hand in hand, and which is where I exist at the moment. But yes. Chris, thank you very much. We'll have uh, links for uh, Mazda City in the uh, show notes. And for uh, everyone listening, we'll uh, also have in there a link where you can get to uh, Chris uh, via LinkedIn. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, PPI. Do you want to advance in your career but not sure where to start? All of us have been there at one point, and one surefire way to grow in your profession is to get your civil engineering license. The best place to gather info on civil licensure and pick from multiple review options is PPI to pass.com. Now, PPI has helped over 4 million engineers pass their licensure exam, me being one of them, and become leaders in their fields. So just visit ppi to pass.com to learn how you can start preparing for your exam right away and take one step closer to career advancement. That's PPI, the number two, P-A-S-S.com. For a little extra encouragement, I have a 20% off promo code available to all of you. Just use promo code TCE8, that's Tango Charlie Echo 8, on PPI's website for an exclusive 20% discount. Again, that's the promo code TCE8. All right, Chris, welcome to the CE Hot Seat. Are you ready to go? Yes, sure. So uh, first question out of the starting blocks here is, uh, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? So for example, this could be uh, some specific morning ritual or maybe a lunchtime ritual. I mean, these are essentially going to be things that you may do on a consistent or daily basis that are, contribute to you being the successful professional that you are. There is one thing that I've um, ended up doing every day. and for me, it's how I start my day. The very first moment when I wake up in the morning, I always very quietly say to myself, thank you. And it's a, it's a thank you to remind myself that I'm well alive and kicking and I have another full day ahead of me. And from that, 
I tend to get up earlier than the rest of my family. So I give myself a bit of quiet time in the quiet of the morning. Call it self-time. And in this self-time, I'll often practice some meditation or at least some time for some self-reflection. Moving right along to the second question here. What's one book that you would recommend to engineers regularly, or maybe just a book that you have found to be extremely helpful? And I know that in the earlier part of our episode here today, you mentioned a couple of books on design management. So any just general books, and then maybe if you might be able to share titles on the design management books, we'll make sure to get the information out to the listeners on today's podcast. I mean, I love reading. I find it difficult to understand anyone who who doesn't. And so if there's one book that jumps out, I don't want to talk about design management books. We can list those out separately. But if there's one book that jumps out to me after all this year, it's a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. This book is a classic. And Marcus Aurelius is one of the five good Roman emperors. And whilst he was protecting the Roman borders back in the first or second century AD around that time, during the nights, he probably didn't have much to do. So he, he kept a journal. A personal journal, and it was a journal that was never meant to be published. So he just wrote down his own thoughts. So here you have probably at the time the most powerful person in the Western world, and he was writing notes for himself. And these notes were guidance on how to improve himself. You can imagine that. What's really interesting then after that is um, after he passed away, someone found these notes and decided to publish them. And this publication is now known as Meditations by, by Marcus Aurelius. It contains many, many life lessons that, in my mind, are super applicable to today. What a great book to recommend, Chris. I've read this book several times. I have a copy that's sitting on my bookshelf here as well. So, I like to make reference to one bit of it that is quite applicable to sustainable design in general. And that is his reference to challenges. And the quote is something along the lines that the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. What it's really saying is you will run into roadblocks. You will run into obstacles. That is a fact of life. But because it is a fact of life, you deal with those obstacles, right? And it's you don't walk around them. And very often the solution is just going figure out a way to go through these uh, obstacles. If you want to spend time um, dealing with boundaries conditions, and I mentioned earlier about uh, boundary conditions, then these boundaries is also another word of, for obstacles. So dealing with boundaries is about dealing with obstacles. And therefore, it stands the reason that without the obstacles, then the boundaries that you're trying to push simply would not be there. They'll be somewhere else, creating an obstacle further down the line. For me, it's a, it's a great way to think about how to come up to these call it difficulties, challenges, block wars, whatever you like to call them. We all have them. But just to look on the positive side, that is where the root is. So I've got one final question for our listeners today, and it's what we call our critical civil engineering career advice question. And that question is, if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her some career advice in that short period of time, what would that advice be? I'll break it up in two parts. From a professional point of view, I would suggest that you take an interest in all those wonderful disciplines that you collaborate with. 
with architecture, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, systems, materials, take an interest because with that interest comes an understanding and with that understanding comes better collaboration. And on the second part is on a personal front. I'll always like to tell people we all, including myself, should make a decision to try and be a good person. Now, being a good person has caused many, many definitions. So it's a very personal thing. Everyone should just go on their personal journey to be that good person that they define for themselves. And what I find interesting is that if you overlap these two together, I believe you would find your way or you could pave the way to ultimately become a good leader. Chris, those are great insights. I appreciate that, both the professional and the personal one. This is great advice and uh, it's been a very good episode. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, this has been great to learn about not only Mazdar City, but uh, some of the design principles that you've been able to develop here and are continuing to develop and then your insights into what you do to be a successful professional. For all of our listeners that are out there, I hope you appreciated today's episode. Chris, again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to the resources, websites, and books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.